Hey, Real Talk podcast listener, you ever think about what Canada might look like 35 years from now? Journalist Ann Castleman did a deep dive in the context of climate change. And in today's episode, she gives us a look into the future. Plus, Charles Adler on the trial of the Freedom Convoy organizers. All of that and more in this episode. This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. It's great to be with you on this uh, post-Labor Day morning. We hope that you had a fantastic long weekend and that you're hitting the ground running this morning on this September 5th. We know that for, for a lot of you, the kids are back in school. This was a, a very different morning than the past, I don't know, 75 or so mornings in your household. And for a lot of you as well, no doubt this day will mark the return uh, to your regular schedule, your fall schedule, your regular routine, so to speak. Now, the cliches are flying this morning, how quickly uh, summer passed us by and how we're already here back at fall. But I have to acknowledge that it sort of feels like there's a, a different energy infused into our workplace this morning. And, and and I think it has a little bit to do with the, the crisp fall air. Johnny, I think yeah. it has a, a little bit to do with the, you know, <laughs> sort of after that Labor Day long weekend, you feel like you, you get back into something. You feel like you sure you, you sort of start taking everything a little bit maybe more seriously. People, yeah. you know, that this is the quarter at work where a lot of people get a little bit more serious mm-hmm. and get back on track. Uh, not always a good thing. Some <laughs> some some people are probably still feeling like they could use another week out at the cabin yeah, or the but cottage. We, but we, we do have those people who love, like my wife, autumn and and getting back oh, into sure. the, the cardigans and stuff like that. I woke up this morning. I, Went out the door and then I was like, I got to go back and get a jacket. Yeah, it's, it's that kind of weather. It's sweater weather, pal. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in, in just a second, we'll, we'll be checking in with Charles Adler and then uh, climate journalist and Shabbatic Hasselman joins us this morning as well. We're going to be taking a look at news as it develops today. Uh, the trial for the for the uh, alleged co-organizers of the so-called Freedom Convoy. Uh, Tamara Litch and Chris Barber kicks off and, and Adler's, I'm sure, got a lot to say about that. Anne's got the cover story in the latest issue of McLean's magazine it takes a look at Canada in 2060 and and to be quite honest with you it's a it's a dire outlook uh now Anne's promised that there there may be uh, not necessarily a silver lining to this story on how a, a heating planet is going to impact Canadians everyday lives but uh it's certainly a story that demands our attention and, and we're looking forward to that conversation we also want to take a quick moment uh to acknowledge and and celebrate news that we received during this past week while we were off uh, with our families, and that is that the Alberta Motion Picture Industry Association has recognized Real Talk with two nominations uh, for their annual Rosie Awards. These are basically the Emmys for the province of Alberta, and we're really excited to be included on that list of nominees uh, uh, among our our peers and our colleagues yeah. in the storytelling industry. And so uh, Real Talk recognized um, as a nominee in the Best Web Series category, uh, as well as in the Best Host category. And Interestingly enough, Johnny, yeah. uh, both of those nominations specifically relating to our February 14th episode of Real Talk. Uh, that was February 14th of 2023 when country music singer, uh, songwriter Brett Kissel joined me here in studio. Uh, we discussed whether or not uh, and we asked him directly whether or not he had uh, endeavored to write the so-called Freedom Convoy Anthem 
with his song Lying in the Sand. It was a, an episode that caught a lot of people's attention, uh, obviously including uh, the judges at Ampia. And I find it particularly interesting that we learned of those nominations right around the time that that trial's kicking off mm-hmm. uh, out east, right around the time we're going to be talking yeah. about the Freedom Convoy. There's even a hook uh, to the Freedom Convoy and what we'll be talking about with Anne Shabana Castleman today on, on how climate change and the future of Canada may be reflected yeah. uh, with certain people's political priorities. So, well, congratulations. Well, it's been an incredible well, 18 months. You know, we built this beautiful studio, as everyone can see, uh, if you're watching on YouTube downtown. We've uh, had some incredible charity events. We've yeah. done a lot of things, and, and it's great to be recognized for all the hard work. A lot to celebrate, and we're, we're grateful for it. And we thank all of you for continuing to support Real Talk. Uh, Charles Adler coming up in 30 seconds. But uh, first, of course, we know even for a lot of you with back to school, the family budgets have maybe been feeling a little bit tighter this year, this go-round, right? It's not news to anybody that the cost of living is absolutely skyrocketed, but you know it goes hand-in-hand with that. The cost of doing business has gone up as well. If you're a business owner or a decision-maker at a business and you need to boost your revenue, one of the best things that you can do is create a standout training program. We Know Training is your best training partner for creating courses and programs that sell. They've helped associations, regulators, nonprofits, and more generate millions of dollars in revenue without any extra work for their teams in creating, managing, and selling those training courses. If you want to learn more, you can visit weknowtraining.ca today and see what they could do for your business. Charles Adler is a Winnipeg Free Press columnist. He is the host of the popular Charles Adler Show podcast. And, of course, the Emmy Award winner joins us the first episode of every week, that Emmy front and center today. How does it feel to look through that golden ball, pal? I'm looking through the golden ball. My my girlfriend, this Emmy, uh, (laughs) who's been with me for 30 years, and you mentioned that you were going to be eligible for uh, what, for all intents and purposes, is Alberta's Emmy. And that's just my way of showing support for my partner ryan jesperson uh and and to be quite frank and to state the obvious it's also a friendly reminder to us that we've got a long way to go uh because it's alberta's emmy but it's not an emmy uh, listen that alberta's (laughs) emmy is a big deal yeah to me yeah yeah uh hey Big day, uh, I suppose, for Canadians, uh, in a way, as the key organizers of that uh, Ottawa, the so-called Freedom Convoy, are set to stand trial starting Tuesday. It's expected to last for about two weeks. They say uh, 16 days, anyway, in court. Uh, Tamara Leach and Chris Barber, the alleged uh, co-conspirators, co-organizers, stand co-accused of mischief, obstructing police, and counseling others to commit mischief and intimidation. How do you approach this on on day one of this trial? Where's your head at? Well, what what blows my mind is the ego on on these people who are accused. I'll once again make sure that everyone understands that I understand uh, the law. They are presumed innocent until proven guilty, right? Um, Tamara Lynch said the other day, that if they had, well, the convoy people, if, if they had wanted to bring the government down, if they had wanted to overthrow the government, they could have done that. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. When, you know, thinking about my, I'm sorry, I, I know that this is, you know, a criminal proceeding and I'm not supposed to be laughing, but over the years in, in talk radio, over the many years, when, when a guest like jumped that kind of shark, 
And the guest would say something like, well, I, I could overthrow the government if I want to. At that point, you know, based on my mom's advice, the most polite thing I could do was to simply say, thank you very much for coming out to play. Good luck with that. Yeah. And then, then I'd move on. But does it, does it, does it not surprise you that these people actually think we're maybe thinking about overthrowing the government and, 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 and in retrospect think, well, yeah, we could have done that. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I have a million thoughts on, on that freedom convoy and uh, it, it would take probably the, the entire duration of this episode if I was to sift through them all. Um, but if I were to try to boil it down to a theme, it's either there were some people that were completely unserious Mm -hmm. uh, that were involved in that convoy. I think people sure. that were looking for a place to belong, people that were kind of, you know, always have been or had started to feel like outsiders based on things like vaccine mandates and, and based on public opinion through that pandemic. Some people that, had, that in, in all sincerity, um, had, had lost their jobs, lost their income, weren't quite yeah. sure where to turn, and they found a place to belong, but, but they found themselves more partying than anything else. I mean, you know, hanging out in the hot tubs and all that kind of stuff. And then there were people that were deadly serious that were involved in the Freedom Convoy. And, and some of them were on that convoy in Ottawa. Some of them were blocking the border at, at Coots, Alberta, uh, you know, the border down to the United States and, and, you know, facing very serious charges, including plotting to murder RCMP officers. And so it's, it's sort of hard for me to say, well, this is like the one way that I view that Freedom Convoy. But in the context of like, we could have overthrown the government if we wanted to, um, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to start sort of throwing around ridiculous hypotheticals, but I think if you were truly to like January 6th style storm parliament, um, and if this were to turn into sort of a standoff show of force, regrettable, horrific type scenario, I think that the, the, the Freedom Convoy participants would have discovered very quickly uh, that they had no idea what they were doing and that uh, attempting to overthrow the government of a democ democratically elected G7 government uh, it takes far more than, you know, Timmy's gift cards and jerry cans and well wishes from Alberta and Saskatchewan. And, and I'm not trying to be a prick. Uh, no, that, that's just a I, fact. You know, you know, I know you're not trying to be a prick, but I, and, and neither am I. But for God's sakes, I remember when some of their leaders publicly said, that they wanted a meeting. In fact, they were demanding a meeting. Demanding. With the governor general. Yeah. Because they wanted the governor general to give them the keys to the government. The governor, they wanted the governor general essentially to tell Justin Trudeau to do what the bumper stickers on many trucks in Alberta say. That, that's a, that, that was, I mean, do you, do you not remember they wanted the meeting with the, the GG? Oh, yeah. I mean, and and they were demanding a meeting with the prime minister as well, and, and he famously refused to grant it, whereas yeah. you had at that time the interim leader of the conservatives, Candace Bergen, out talking to them. Obviously, Pierre Polyev, you know, there's hundreds of photos of him arm in arm with the uh, convoy participants, and, and that doesn't seem to be hurting him as much as some people may no. have thought it would. No, I, we're, we're, living, we're living in very strange times. There are so many people now who are opposed uh, to the status quo who want change, that uh, all of the stuff that Pierre Polyev says, all of the stuff that he does, either inspires them or doesn't turn them off. Uh, we are living in them. I mean, I've, I've lived a long time, uh, thankfully. Um, but these are the most interesting times I've ever lived in. I, I don't say that because I'm, I'm, I'm positive about them. Uh, it doesn't mean that I'm happy about them. I'm no, no happier about them than than McLean's uh, latest edition, which you'll be talking oh, about man. in the program. You know, it's it's a it's a dire warning for what Canada is going to look like. I mean, Canada is going to be in flames as far as 
uh, th- that particular magazine piece goes, we're going to be in flames in, 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 in a few years, mainly because of, of climate change. And I mean, even now, you've got a lot of these convoy types who say to me, why do you keep thinking climate change has anything to do with, with the smoke? I mean, the Calgary Stampeders had to put out a release yesterday saying they were monitoring the smoke and they were going to make sure that the air quality was was decent so that the fans uh, at the McMahon Stadium wouldn't be imperiled by what's going on. Yeah, the and riders I, I said, too, yeah. And I said, it's amazing. I mean, Alberta has had smoky day after smoky day after smoky day all summer long. It's been the summer of smoke. And I said, it's ironic that with all this smoke, uh, so many people choose to deny climate change. And of course, the usual people got on my case about, don't I understand that it's all about arson and certain arsonists have been, have been, Ryan, can you say it in your words that are less inflammatory than mine? Uh, you know, the, the connection between climate change and the smoke in Alberta, and it's not about whether or not, you know, someone lit a match can you do it in your in your benign diplomatic way? <laughs> My benign, yeah. Well, I mean, we we we've had fire scientists on on the show, and, and people can check yeah. out, you know, through the course, you know, our archives through the summer. I believe, uh, Johnny, one of our episodes. What did we call it? I think we just called it "Why Is the Planet Getting Hotter?" Yeah. Or why are, yeah. why are fire and 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 we have uh, you know climate and and fire scientists, wildfire scientists that that just they came on the show and they explained it, Chuck. But it's pretty straightforward. It's that uh, number one, you know, whether a fire is is human caused, which could be our Arson. Uh, it could be cigarette butts. It could be, a, you know, a heated uh, exhaust system on a quad that causes a, a fire when, when somebody's off-roading or camping. Um, whatever the whatever the cause, the the conditions that the boreal forests and, and the, the grasslands are in um, are, 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 you know, the, the susceptibility to bigger, faster burning, hotter fires is undeniable. And uh, and Anne is going to join us. Anne Shabata Castleman will join us. And, and right out of the gates, people can read her full piece at mcleans.ca. But I'm always excited to talk uh, to the journalists to go beyond the story, to go beyond the pages. But she says, listen, like, you know, this information, everything that she presents in her piece is vetted by, by you know, peers. These are peer-reviewed studies. She talks to the scientists. So whether or not somebody wants to believe it, you know, we always say this, and it's not meant to be dismissive, but you don't have to believe in the law of gravity. Whether or not you believe in it, it still applies. And you'll find that if you jump off a building or out of a plane. So you don't have yes. to believe in climate change, or you don't have to believe in, in that sort of stuff uh, to make it relevant it is going to be relevant so you know it brings us back to what we're talking about today you take a look at this trial now i guess a lot of canadians are going to be wondering does this even still matter is the freedom convoy even on folks minds does a conviction matter if convicted what does the sentencing look like does that even matter if the average person doesn't take this convoy seriously then why should they take the trial seriously what would you tell them i would tell them that it's impossible to have the canada that we were born in or at least arrived in for those of us who weren't born here it's impossible to have this gorgeous land that we have unless we believe in the rule of law we cannot believe in the rule of law unless we believe in the enforcement of the rule of law if laws were broken that day, I believe they were. The prosecutors clearly believe they were. If it can be proven in a court of law in a free country called Canada, it's important that the law be enforced. And so you can 
You don't have to believe in climate change. You don't have to believe in the law of gravity. Maybe when you do jump out of a plane, as Ryan Jesperson just mentioned, if you're not wearing a parachute, maybe you'll come to the belief in a rather violent and perhaps meaningful way. But to be absolutely brutally serious about this, if we don't have rule of law in Canada, if we don't have enforcement of the rule of law in Canada, we've lost Canada. I don't want to lose the greatest country in the world. Let me ask you about this uh, tweet that, that seemed to really strike a chord with you. And, and, and I noticed yesterday that you responded to it. I don't know who this person is. Uh, he tweets at Ben Bradbury. He says, I'm 34 years old. I've lived in Canada my whole life. The Freedom Convoy was the first and only time in my life where I truly felt proud to be Canadian. Uh, it was the only time that I had ever seen that kind of unity and purpose in the country. And it wasn't for something dumb and meaningless like a sports game. It was for something that was real, something that actually mattered, something that actually affected people's day-to-day lives. People from every race, every religion, and every class coming together to stand against tyranny and for what was right and true. He finishes by saying it was a really wonderful thing to see. I hope to see it again someday, and I hope I don't have to wait another 34 years. Why did that tweet in particular light you up? Because it depressed me. You know, Ryan, I count on young guys who are 34, guys, gals, I don't want to get into a gender thing here. Um, I count on the generation that is half my age to care about this country as much as I do and to have reasons to care about the country. If the only reason a 34-year-old guy in Canada today can be proud of Canada is because a, a bunch of yahoos are honking their horns louder than Christ all night long, keeping up old folks and babies and pets and preventing people from going to work and pissing on statues dedicated to our war heroes. If, if, if that's what makes them proud to be Canadian, then once again, I'm, I'm, I'm worried that we've lost the country, or at least we've lost the country in the eyes of a number of people because the country this guy wants to have, the country this guy wants to treasure, isn't the country that you and I have grown up in. Let me ask you, uh, there's a couple other stories we're keeping an eye on. Before I run out of time with you, I want to ask you about what's going on in Ontario. Uh, Minister, Ontario's former housing minister has resigned, Steve Clark, uh, after a scathing report. This is all related to the Greenbelt development, and I think a lot of people for months have been speculating that that there was going to be some scandal here it just, people just had that sense wasn't it? i think it was it was uh ford's future daughter-in-law had a they had a celebration and an engagement party and a bunch of developers were there giving gifts and it just kind of reeked uh it sort of smelled fishy uh doug ford the premier of ontario now has shuffled his cabinet and has acknowledged that they're going to be reviewing some of these land swaps that have been happening uh over this greenbelt plan where are you standing on this right now? Like, how bad does this look? How bad do you think it might be? And how bad could it be, potentially, for Doug Ford's political career? Let's be honest, he's managed to dodge every single bullet that's flown anywhere near him yeah. for the last 10 years. Well, once again, I mean, I go back to what the country's about. This is Canada. This is not Brazil. This is not Argentina. Uh, this is not a, a country that's being run by a junta. And the rule of law tell us that you can't have a situation where some privileged insiders who are called developers are told that the status of land will change. So wink, wink, you might want to buy some 
you might want to buy the lottery ticket for a buck because we'll guarantee you that you'll make 10 million bucks. We'll guarantee that the millions that you invest will turn into billions, which is exactly what's happened. That's against the law. The premier wants to defend it. The premier doesn't want to give the land back. The premier doesn't want to do what's been recommended by by the Auditor General and, and by others. Um, the Premier wants to run and gun this thing uh, based on his folksy, aw shucks, you know, if I make mistakes, I don't mean to because I, I love the people of Ontario. I love you folks, folks, folks. I mean, that's getting thinner and thinner by the day. And this is something that, you know, the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, don't even want to investigate. So they've advised that the RCMP has to get involved, and the RCMP is getting involved. And so this is the kind of thing that is not supposed to be going on in Canada. It's supposed to be going on in what we used to call banana republics or third world countries where corruption is the norm. This thing stinks. Yeah. A quote uh, on the record, uh, Ontario's uh, opposition leader, the NDP, Merritt Stiles, says this new cabinet, uh, Premier Ford's cabinet, is a slapdash team. Says, uh, quote, Mr. Ford can rearrange the deck chairs all he likes, but it's not going to change the fact that Ontarians are fed up with a corrupt government rigging the system to help a select few of their insiders get even richer at everyone else's expense. Um Ford says the government will continue to do what it needs to do to address Ontario's housing crisis. One other story out of Alberta. This is one where you you just kind of shake your head. I've I've never really understood what people in the public eye expect will come of social media posts like what we saw from Red Deer Catholic school trustee Monique LaGrange, uh, who uh, posted just a few days ago um, two photos, uh, one of them, uh, you know, Nazi youth uh, back in the late 30s or early 40s, a photo of these these cherub faced young Aryan children waving Nazi flags, swastika flags, quite a striking image uh, below them. What, you know, I would anticipate is, is is present day, current day, young kids. I don't know. Kindergarten, grade one, grade two, waving a pride flag. Uh, so says the elected trustee for the Red Deer Catholic School Board brainwashing is brainwashing uh, she's being roasted obviously uh, for the post um, alberta's education minister uh dimitrios nicolaitis uh, i'm quoting reporting uh, by the red deer advocate um issued a statement on twitter a few days ago says alberta's education minister no one should have to live in fear of violence discrimination or exclusion all students deserve to feel safe and welcome in schools across the province i'm beyond disappointed to see this and categorically condemn these actions says he'll be following up with the chair of Red Deer Catholic Regional Schools. In your mind, what's an appropriate outcome in a situation like this? I mean, what do you make of this story? Well, you can't be a trustee unless you're trusted by the public. And if the public is trusting her, then um, once again, all bets are off for Canada. In this case, all bets are off for for Red Deer or, or Alberta. Because you cannot trust someone who wants to liken what the Nazi youth were asked to believe and compare that with what school children are taught and what the pride flag is about. The pride flag is about one simple thing, whether you're straight or gay, whether you're bi, whether you're trans, whatever your orientation is, okay? You're a human being equal to every other human being deserving of every right and every dignity that is offered every other human being. We are all equals. 
This is Canada. We're proud to be Canadians, and I'd be proud to fly a pride flag anytime, anywhere. The swastika is not the pride flag. The swastika and Hitler Youth and all of that nonsense that she's posting about is an ideology that told people in Germany, in this case, young people, that many people in their country were dangerous to them. Many people in their country were a threat to them. And many people in their country were subhuman. Indeed, they were vermin. That's what they were taught. Well, my fellow Canadians are not vermin. And if someone wants to compare them to an ideology that has declared that many people, including my own ancestors, were vermin, I'm sorry. I don't call that person a trustee. I don't call that person a person of trust. I call that person a person who should be a former trustee and the authorities in Red Deer need to take care of business. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, You know, the uh, Central Alberta Pride Society uh, has sent a letter and they've made it an open letter uh, to the Red Deer Catholic Regional School Board Chair Anne-Marie Watson. And they published that letter over the weekend. People can find it uh, from the Central Alberta Pride Society says we'd like a formal apology uh, by her. I mean, obviously, uh, to students, teachers, and parents, as as well as the LGBTQ community, says along with this, we're requesting that Ms. Lagrange, by the way, uh, apparently a distant relative to former Alberta Education Minister Adriana Lagrange, also out of Red Deer, but but not a tight relative. Apparently, it's it, their relatives through marriage. Uh, but we're requesting that Ms. Monique Lagrange either step down from her position as a board member or be removed immediately. To me, that's where it begins. Um, I, I don't think if you're uh, if you're if you're the board chair here, if you're a fellow trustee, I don't think there's there's any courage in remaining silent on this or remaining uh, uh, as Christ would have said, if I may quote him, Adler, lukewarm on this issue. Uh, there is no both sides on comparing the pride flag. No, there is both sides. And apparently, Lagrange. Lagrange, I'm not talking about the minister in the uh, Smith uh, cabinet. I'm talking about this particular uh, Lagrange, the school trustee in, in Red Deer. Uh, apparently, she tells people that God has conversations with her mm-hmm. and that God has told her to do the things she's doing. Uh, once again, it's not to disparage religion, but uh, once someone is using the excuse that, you know, I had a talk with Jesus and Jesus is telling me to post pictures of Nazi youth. I mean, at that point, once again, I have to say to the guest, Thank you for coming out to play. Good luck. Charles Adler joins us the first episode of every single week. You can find him on Twitter at Charles Adler. And of course, subscribe to the Charles Adler show wherever you find your podcast. It's wonderful to connect with you again, my man. After a week away, we were missing you. I was missing you. And I'm I'm glad that you had a substantial weekend. And I'm glad that you're up for the Alberta version (laughs) of the Emmy. Thanks, pal. We'll talk to you again next Monday. That's Charles Adler right here, only on Real Talk, the first episode of every single week. And Shabbatic Councilman coming up in just a moment. Canada in 2060. What's it going to look like? Uh, it's going to be dire. I'm going to tell you, this isn't going to be like our, you know, our most recent Real Talk roundtable where Twyla Cannibal and Dan Clapson and I talked about the future of prairie food, and it was all fantastic, and how people are starting to grow their own vegetables again and save their own rendered fat in the fridge, and people are returning to their roots and buying farm fresh, and it was nothing but positivity and optimism. This, this conversation about the future of Canada is going to look a little bit different, but and promises us that, that, that at, at least on one front, uh, there is a compelling reason to not give up all hope. That's coming up in just a second. These conversations on Real Talk happen because of 
sponsors, because of partners of ours, like our friends at Friesen Brothers, who want to remind you that the Alberta Corn Roast, that annual corn roast, has been a cherished tradition of theirs. It kind of kicks off the harvest season and the Alberta Beef Roundup, so it's a big deal. Uh, Coming up on September 9th, from noon to 4 p.m., that's September 9th, this coming Saturday, from noon to 4, you can visit your local Friesen Brothers store for an enjoyable afternoon with the community, a great opportunity to immerse yourself in the spirit of the Alberta Beef Roundup while connecting with your neighbors and discovering more about that Alberta Beef Roundup tradition. If you're going, hang on a second, what's the Alberta Beef Roundup? Well, you're going to want to check out their website, Friesen.com. That's F-R-E-S-O-N.com. And we'll have more details for you on that Alberta Beef Roundup on upcoming episodes. 16 different Alberta locations for you to find Friesen Brothers. We're going to be talking about fires and floods in just a second. Regrettably, to say the very least, it's been a devastating summer across the country. I mean, B.C., Alberta, Saskatchewan, the Maritimes. If you're one of those real talkers that finds yourself in that tough position that we feel for you, that unenviable position of trying to restore your life, trying to get things back to how they were post-flood, post-fire, we recommend you check out Complete Care Restoration. They've been around for more than a decade, earning the trust of not just their clients, but also the insurance companies that they work with. Check the small print on your policy. Chances are you can choose who does the work based on our first-hand experience working with Complete Care Restoration. Heck, they built our studio We give their team two thumbs up for their attention to detail, for their professionalism, and for their follow-up efforts. Really a remarkable team at Complete Care Restoration. If back to school this year is looking a little bit different for you, the kids are back in class, you've got maybe a little extra time on your hands than you did through July and August, and you're starting to think about pursuing that course you've always been intrigued by, or maybe a full degree program, Take two minutes today and check out AthabascaU.ca. Their world-class accredited online programs and courses offer you the flexibility to learn at your own pace on a schedule that suits your lifestyle. And get this, nearly 9 out of 10 graduates, close to 90% of AthabascaU graduates say that they are currently in a job related to their field of study. Not everybody, not every post-secondary institution can claim those numbers. Really neat stuff. Check out how the admissions process goes by visiting athabascau.ca. And we wanted to take a quick second as well today to let you know about our friends at Dairy Queen. The fall blizzard treat menu is out now at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. Now, those summer blizzard treats that we were so excited about, the s'mores blizzard and all that kind of stuff, well, the fall blizzard treat menu reflects a little bit more like Johnny was talking about, the flavors of the season, which means that you're going to get the pumpkin spice taste. You're going to get the flavors that take you back to fall your favorite memories including caramel fudge cheesecake they've got the reese's peanut butter cup pie and the snickerdoodle cookie dough blizzard if you haven't tried that johnny we got the pumpkin pie blizzard treat as well you can find those at the dairy queens in northwest edmonton and sherwood park that's palisades nemeo newcastle westmount and baseline Road. Pumpkin spice on everything. There's pumpkin spice is kind of a, it's like a religion now. I know I'm not the oh, first to say it, but yeah. 
for people that are super excited about the pumpkin spice trend, you've only, what's mm-hmm. that sweet spot? The window's like three or four weeks, I think. Yeah. And so you got people that are going to be hitting up the Dairy Queen pumpkin spice blizzards. Mm-hmm. Of course, they don't have to remind you that pumpkin spice lattes will be available, I'm sure, wherever you're getting your coffee. And then there's nothing like just the classic. I mean, we'll bring it back to the Friesen Brothers, <laughs> the Master Bakers there. Just the classic pumpkin yeah. pie. People are addicted to pumpkin. Those lines that all the coffee shops get going oh, and, and then you pull up and they're like, we're out of we're out of PS for the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, PSL. People, PSL. If you know, you know. Yeah. All right, we're having a laugh, uh, but uh, things are about to, to get serious, uh, not, not just on this show, but across the country and around the world. Uh, we're seeing the impact, like it or not, believe it or not, we're seeing the impact of climate change. And in Canada, summers lost to fire and smoke, biblical floods, dying forests, retreating coasts, economic turmoil, political unrest. It's going to be a weird century, writes Anne Shabata Castleman, a climate journalist, in the latest issue of McLean's magazine. She gives us a sneak peek at what Canada is going to look like in the year 2060. And she joins us live on this Tuesday morning, returning to the show. Of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that she's also a member of our editorial board. It's always so nice to see you. Do I say happy fall? I mean, someone will call me on the timeline, but it feels like fall today, doesn't it? I'm, I'm just looking out the window and it, there is a fall like crispness and sort of dampness to the air, which in Vancouver, like our falls are just wet. So yeah. that's great. We're welcoming that extra precipitation for sure. You're joining us from Vancouver uh, in our home city of Edmonton for the, for the past few days. There's been just this heavy smoke and, and not I wouldn't say for the past few days, maybe for the past few months oh. on and off. Um, it, it's not there this morning, which doesn't mean that it won't be here tomorrow. But I think it's just served as a stark reminder. A friend of mine texted me yesterday. He says, uh, actually, let me get the actual. I want to read this to you. This mm-hmm. is this is from I uh, want to hear it. Yeah, well, he, 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 he was talking because everybody that lives in Edmonton and that can justify living in, in communities like Edmonton and Saskatoon and and Yellowknife and Winnipeg and, and all these other Canadian uh, metropolitan areas and, and for that matter rural areas that, that see severe winter weather that see the harsh winter weather we always point to our summers right we always say well Edmonton has sunlight until 11 at night at the end of June beginning of August and the summers are wonderful and we have all these golf courses and, and living in Edmonton for six months of the year is an absolute dream and my pal Jarrett said it really changes that whole Edmonton weather trade-off of bad winters and amazing summers when the summers are filled with smoke. Uh, this has to have been maybe one contributing factor to what gave you the story idea here for McLean's, yeah? Certainly. I mean, there are just so many. It sort of feels like um, there are all these signs that are that are coming our way, and I... Um, I just really wanted to put them together. I mean, to back up a little bit, I think the magazine definitely wanted to take a very comprehensive, big picture look at Canada's climate future. And they wanted that look to be pretty clear eyed and unflinching. One thing that I keep thinking as this article's come out and it's getting attention and people are talking about it and um, I mean, the web traffic to the site's been incredible. I think because the summer has sort of been 
it's a lived experience that we've all had of what Canada's climate future will be like. Um, but also, I, I think we it's I think people are starting to realize that, you know, this actually is a Canadian issue. I think we felt very insured and sort of protected in Canada against climate change impacts. Now, I think we are starting to see that, unfortunately, that's no longer no, no longer the case and that all of us are vulnerable. Um, yeah, so it's a it's a big topic. And uh, I mean, I spent six months sort of living in Canada's climate future researching this, which was like a whole different story. Um, yeah, I like listen to a lot. These days, I just listen to a lot of the Barbie soundtrack. Um, <laughs> just but, to balance know, it out. Oh, totally. I spent, there was a while where I sort of go shopped online for heart-shaped cake pens because I was like, I just, you know, it is, it is significant. Um, that being said, we, we kind of need to face it head on, you know, sticking our heads in the sand is not going to work. It's not going to change the impacts as they come. And what became abundantly clear was that if we're clear eyed about it and we can, plan to mitigate some of the impacts those um the benefits of that planning will reward us and future canadians for generations so you know it isn't it does feel overwhelming right now but at the same time i just and i feel that um and for listeners that feel overwhelmed or just sort of like oh all the news is dire I mean, I totally hear you, but at the same time that all these impacts are sort of larger than life and sort of scarier or more overwhelming than they've ever been, I would say that if you look at the transition, um, it's gaining momentum. And by transition, I mean the transition away from fossil fuels. It is gaining traction in a way that it never has before. So we're sort of at this interesting inflection point. You do an incredible job and, and I just like a, a big fan of 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 uh, journalists like you who put in the time uh, to present these sort of long form investigations and really, really tell a story. And, and people can find it online at, at mcleans.ca to, to read it. And I encourage people to go all the way through because you talk about the political implications. You talk about economic implications. You talk about what employment's going to look like in Canada uh, over the next 30 years or so. 35 years or so, but but you start, uh, you take us into a conversation that you had with Armel Castellan, who has a very interesting job, uh, keeping keeping a, a keen and watchful eye in particular on trends in, in BC and Yukon. Um, can you tell us about that conversation? It's pretty obvious why you open with that conversation, but, but who is this person and how did that conversation strike you? So the piece opens up with the 2021 BC Heat Dome, which is interesting because it's an event that happened two years ago. It's summer 2023 right now. But the more I started examining Canada's climate future, it became very apparent that the heat dome and just the comprehensive cascading impacts that that heat dome triggered in BC and also even in Alberta um, was very emblematic of what the rest of the country will be experiencing in the decades ahead. And so I really wanted to paint it to life to sort of show that our climate future isn't 10, 20, 30 years away. It is already happening. We are already living it. 
And one person who I found that could really speak to that and who was a real sentinel for essentially climate change impacts is this um, disaster preparedness meteorologist at Environment Canada out here on the West Coast. His name's Armel Castellan. And he's a very, I mean, he's obviously hugely dedicated to his work. His job is growing um, exponentially as the disasters unfold out here on the West Coast. But he was the guy who was looking at his weather model two weeks ahead of the heat dome, which killed there were over 700 excess deaths in a week in BC from that extreme heat event um, and over a hundred in Alberta as well as those in Washington state and Oregon state. He was a guy who was sitting at his computer who was casting forward, uh, seeing this giant heat event grow in his forecast models. And he knew two weeks ahead of the rest of us that BC was headed for a really, really tough, heat emergency. And so I wanted to bring that scene to life to sort of show, you know, the person who is looking out on the horizon and who can see the disaster or the extreme event that is going to significantly impact our health, our well-being, our prosperity. I mean, the heat dome here, it decimated crops also in Alberta. Um, I mean, spring wheat crops were just brutalized. I think prices doubled that summer because they took such a hit. It triggered all these wildfires. The wildfires shut down railways. So we had supply chain issues. I mean, the cascading impacts from that one week-long heat event, it touched every part of the province. And so I wanted to tell that story to sort of bring to life why these impacts matter and why it's important to have your eye on the horizon and to see, be clear eyed about what's coming and to be able to plan for it better. I don't know if it's weird for you when somebody reads your writing back to you, but for, for everybody <laughs> listening on, uh, on the podcast and, and on YouTube, I mean, you, you're a master storyteller. Uh, you describe that heat dome in BC. This is just two years ago. Quote, across the region, roads buckled, car windows cracked, power cables melted. The emerald fringes of conifers browned overnight as if singed by flame. Entire cherry orchards were destroyed. The fruit stewed on the trees. More than 650,000 farm animals died of heat stress. Hundreds of thousands of honeybees perished, their organs exploding outside their bodies. Billions of shoreline creatures, shellfish, simply baked to death, strewing beaches with empty shells and a fetid stench that lingered for weeks. Birds and insects went unnervingly silent. All the while, the skies were hazy but clear, the air preternaturally still, not a cloud in sight. The air pressure was so high, they'd all dissipated. Then came the fires. I mean, this is like Book of Revelation type stuff. Uh, this is not your prognostication. This isn't someone looking ahead and and trying to compel people to pay attention to to emissions reduction initiatives or what have you. This is in retrospect. This is something that did happen. Yes, it did. And scientists have studied that heat event. Um, I was shocked 
actually, at how many scientists internationally studied this heat event, because it was so anomalous, which is to say it was so outside the range of normal and what is expected in the Pacific Northwest which is known as a rainforest. And when they studied it, they found absolutely an event like this is virtually impossible without human-caused greenhouse gas emissions warming the planet. And so this is an event where you do have the smoking gun of the effect of our buildup of fossil fuel emissions from burning all these fossil fuels, triggering and sort of essentially just battering BC with this litany of, I mean, the consequences were so wide ranging, they sort of bigger belief when I started researching them. I mean, I lived through that heat dome and, you know, we had young kids and at the, they were younger at the time. I remember like we set up little pools of water and we would just watch TV and drink Gatorade and we kept their feet in the water and sort of wet their heads to keep them from overheating. But what I did not appreciate was that the effects were felt so far and wide. And as well, it really shows you how I think people think of warming as, you know, oh, two degrees of warming. It's, you know, if I if I put up the thermostat in my house by two degrees, it's just nice and cozier. And maybe I'll take off my sweater and wear my T-shirt. Um, I think we're seeing now that global warming, when the scientists are talking about these global averages of warming, they encompass that average includes these extreme outlier events like the heat dome, like our very early dry hot spring this year that has primed our forests for fire weather. Um, we also see it with extreme flood events and how it energizes and powers more powerful hurricanes. So it isn't just like turning up the thermostat a couple of degrees. You know, we are we are literally we have changed the atmosphere so that all our weather is now currently being built and being created in an atmosphere that has more energy and that energy is essentially coming back at us in the form of heat domes, extreme rains, hurricanes. So yes, it's it's a huge deal. I mean, that, that's sort of the understatement of the century, but this is very, very significant and Canada needs to be taking it very seriously. You remember when you joined us, like, I don't know, it might've been two years ago now and uh, you became fast friends with a real talker by the name of Heidi Bergstrom and the two of you were yes! talking, you were talking ah! about childcare and you were talking about childcare yes. programs and funding. Well, Heidi's in our live chat right now. Um, yeah. Oh, so that's, Heidi! it's great. It's, oh, that's it's, awesome. Sometimes I feel like we got this big audience, but sometimes it's a small world at the same time. Oh, um, Heidi's, com that. Heidi's comments a bit of a gut punch, but I think that a lot of people can relate to it. And she says that heat dome was the thing that triggered my climate anxiety. She says, I always, always understood that climate change was happening, uh, but that made it extremely real and present. Uh, so, so you take uh, this look and you talk to these experts and you take a look at a portrait of Canada, a Canada that is warmed by two degrees. And you write, this is not what our country will look like if the world fails to reduce emissions. This is our future, even if we do. So, so this is a pretty clear look at what the science says 
Canada's going to look like in 2060. Why don't we start by, you know, we're talking about these these harsh winters that so many uh, Canadians experience and, and obviously other global citizens. Um, and this is not a good news story per se, <laughs> quite the opposite. Uh, but Canada in 2060, uh, as, as you discover, uh, winter's going to be less of a factor. That's true. I mean, so, you know, I think extreme heat, the experts are telling us, and I think we're seeing this, poses the biggest risk to our survival, like survival, not as a species, but as in the heat can kill you. Um, However, in terms of sort of our national identity as Canadians, the largest impacts, or I think the more soul-shaking impacts from climate change will be this dissipation of winter. And so already, as much as our summers are getting warmer in Canada, our winters are actually getting warmer at a faster rate. And there are projections that look at things like backyard ice hockey rinks and the kind of cold, the consistent cold weather that people need to sort of put in the work to build a backyard ice rink and you know they will become increasingly endangered the odds of a winter where people will not have the four to six weeks of super cold freezing temperatures that they need to make the effort to build a backyard ice rink worth it will reduce um even something like a white christmas you know i looked into the research on odds of a white christmas and there will be places in Canada where a white Christmas will not be as likely, especially out in Atlantic Canada. Um, if you go further north, of course, the significance of losing that cold is much more. Um, it's I mean, it's very profound. And so I did talk to Natan Obed, who's the president of the Inuit Tapirit Kanatami, and he painted I mean it was one of the most eye-opening conversations I had in reporting my piece because he essentially outlined the changes that the Inuit are experiencing in their homeland are altering their infrastructure for traveling around to see each other for foraging for going to cultural sites and by the infrastructure I mean the arctic sea ice and so when that sea ice becomes so unreliable that experienced hunters are falling through it and dying when for decades they've managed to navigate it safely, um, you sort of lose this integral fabric to a culture and a society that, in his words, we are going to have to learn how different ways of being Inuit hmm. in the North. Because, and he pointed the finger, and this is completely fair, because the global community has failed to essentially stave off this reality by cutting our emissions and by taking sort of taking the steps to defang the impacts of climate change. And that, when he said that, to me as a Southern Canadian, I felt such, I just, it felt like, it felt like he was speaking to this betrayal, this very deep betrayal that I don't think many Southern Canadians are aware of or have even really come to terms with. Um, so that was, 
speaking of the loss of cold, um, there is an existential loss that's happening to Inuit people in Canada because of warming. Yeah, like simply put, it's like populations least responsible uh, yes. f- for human-caused climate change are experiencing the most significant impacts of it, you know? I, yes. I mean, even, yes. and, and you'll have some people that'll say, you know, and, and you know how we are as humans. It's it's not our most flattering attribute, but if something doesn't directly affect us, we care about it less. People are still, I, I was, we dropped our uh, little man off first day of grade three today. And uh, there's a firefighter ahead of us in line dropping off his daughter. He's been on the show before, Kevin Royal. Um, he's responsible for organizing millions of, of dollars of, of equipment. They've sent fire trucks over to Ukraine and they've sent bunker gear. They've sent all kinds of things. They're over there training these firefighters in in medical response, in wartime uh, medical uh, tactical procedures. I mean, fascinating stuff. And, I, and And he's just back. He got back like a week ago from another trip and he's showing me videos like on his phone that he took of these anti-missile things happening and he's like look at this this was a building that was hit by a drone strike right next to us and all this and I'm thinking as we're we're in line with all these low grade threes and it's positive it's the first day of school and I'm sitting there thinking I have been sleeping soundly for the last six months uh while the people in Ukraine are, are experiencing nightmares why uh, why are we not troubled by this? It's because as humans, I think if it doesn't directly threaten us or directly impact us, we care a little bit less. Uh, it's not a good thing. And I think that writing like yours can remind us that this is a needs to be a collective effort. It's a collective problem. People may listen to this interview and say, oh, well, I don't get a white Christmas. Like, it's not the end of the world, right? I'm, I don't get a white Christmas. I mean, you talk about temperatures rising and what it does to the human body i mean you know for 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 real talkers tuning in from montreal for example uh, they can expect you know they currently see about 13 days a year over 30 degrees celsius they're going to see 37 right friends of ours tuning in from calgary they typically see five days a year over 30 degrees on average they're going to see 20 in toronto they currently see 12 days a year over 30 they're going to see 39 and the impact, oh, hotter days, oh, great, we'll be at the beach. I'm not worried about it. We laugh it off. You know, grab a couple cold ones, have the friends over for a barbecue. I mean, can you talk to us about what these increased heat levels does to, to blood circulation, to the efficacy of prescription medication, uh, to, to attitudes, to, to, to people's fight-or-flight response, uh, to domestic violence rates? To, I mean, there's things that you might not think about firsthand or, or at first glance that we realize later on are of great significance. Certainly. And this was something that I went down a deep rabbit hole on this because I, once I started sort of unearthing these facts, it was like, where does this end? And you spoke to it, which is essentially that our world and all the prosperity and security that we've enjoyed in it has been built for a stable specific temperature range, which is the temperature range that we have historically experienced. And as we push our climate past that historic comfort zone, simply put, it's sort of like ski wax, like you have different ski wax for different conditions. And we've been using a certain type of ski wax on our society. And it's worked very well. Well, now that ski wax isn't going to work as well. And so things like insulin, 
you know, if it's not stored at a lower temperature, it won't be as effective. Um, something like planes taking off, and we saw this actually during some of the extreme heat events in the States this summer, right. planes had to um, reduce their cargo because in the thinner, hotter air, they just couldn't get the same lift. Their wings couldn't generate the same lift. Um, I mean, sort of everywhere you look in our world, once you start digging into the engineering or the biology of it, you realize that the heat stress or extreme heat events push things past the optimum threshold of their functionality. Um, even things like bridges, you know, there was a study by an engineer in the United States who started looking into bridge infrastructure and realized, oh, like these cycles of extreme heat with um, other sort of cold snaps are going to accelerate the wearing and the weathering of these bridges. So we basically need, and I mean, bridges are like, a, they're, we need them for everything. They're the glue that holds society and all our supply chains together. So that was, that was very eye-opening. And I will say, I think going into this piece, I sort of expected to find a lot of climate impacts. You know, what will it do to our oceans? We have sea level rise. It will cause the temperature to change. Our summers will be hotter. Our winters will be warmer. You know, trees might shift from this type to this type in our forests. What I did not realize was how significantly the climate impacts will be on us, mm. on us Canadians, in terms of our health. And, you know, to Heidi's point, she is not alone. That heat dome here, scientists at Simon Fraser University studied it, and that one heat event resulted in a 13% rise in very significant climate anxiety and with impacts on day-to-day -day functioning of British Columbians. So the impacts on our mental health in Canada are also huge and something that, you know, I see the public health professionals starting to think about, but the general public, that messaging is, is not getting to the general public that this is something that we need to think about in terms of how we talk about climate change and how in terms of how we educate young people about climate change because we don't want people to feel Hopeless. I mean, if anything, this reality on a horizon should it should galvanize us to double down and speed up our efforts to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. I mean, you can't it's like any dependency. You can't just go cold turkey. And of course, realistically, we can't. But we need to be better about consistently weaning ourselves off of these fossil fuels because until we do that the warming will not stop um it's and so in that sense it's quite simple i mean we just need to be doing better to stop it from getting worse yeah ken in our live chat says even if you decide to ignore scientists and scientific consensus for that matter it's pretty hard to ignore the insurance industry he says the actuaries are telling you what's happening we were talking several months ago about how hundreds of thousands or more people are finding themselves without coverage they're finding themselves or, or their assets to be uninsurable in california uh, and other states will follow suit we've had similar conversations in canada um, most especially following big natural disasters so we know and, and and people need to read your piece and we're not going to be able to cover all of it i mean that's a testament to to the depth of your reporting 
that hundreds of thousands of people could be displaced from their communities, from their homes, that Canada could face, you know, the cost of climate change could be $100 billion a year. Uh, we're talking about Canada in, in 2060. One of the intriguing points that you make, uh, the avenues that you take, so to speak, is how you believe that this may spawn political extremism. Uh, what an interesting uh, day for you and I to be connecting on this story as, as the trial kicks off uh, for, for the alleged co-organizers or co-conspirators behind that freedom convoy. Um, they're going to be facing charges, you know, mischief, inciting mischief and, and the like. Um, how, do, how do you believe that political extremism uh, may be ignited, if I can borrow that phrase, by climate change in 2060? And, and, and what might that look like? What should people prepare themselves for or expect to see? So this was one of, I mean, one thing that I wanted to get into were these second and third order effects of climate change. So not just what is it going to do to our air? What is it going to do to our societies and our communities? And talking to the security experts, this was something that a lot of the political scientists and uh, security scholars mentioned, which is that as, and it's sort of, it comes from both ends of the political spectrum. So as the impacts of climate change become more painful and more unbearable, people who want better emissions reductions and stronger, more stringent climate policy will be more angered and act out in protest. And on the flip side of it, those who feel invested in fossil fuels and who feel left behind and unheard by a transition away from fossil fuels will also become more extreme. And so it's not just, I mean, it, yeah, even though we tend to think of it as the freedom convoy, realistically, I think we will be seeing more disruptive direct action by citizens from those who are entrenched in the fossil fuel industry and sort of culturally what it means, as well as those who want a better future and who are frustrated and angered by the lack of action investing in their own future. Um, and in the words of one security guy, he basically said, as we progress, the odds of a significant security event happening on any day are just going to rise and rise. This isn't to say that it's going to be an apocalypse and that, you know, like all those TV shows that we know that show sort of a post-civilization world. I am not, and no one is saying that Canada is headed in that direction. We have a strong democracy and we have institutions that can safeguard against that. But the odds of these outlier events, in the same way that we will get extreme weather events, the odds of extreme direct action security-related events will increase, say the experts. And we've already seen this in terms of United We Roll, which was a peaceful protest. Um, you know, what happened in Ottawa, talking to people who live in Ottawa was pretty wild for them. I mean, there were there was one neighborhood where the citizens actually went out onto a bridge and directly stopped the truckers from invading their neighborhood. And so 
that's like a new tenor of interaction in Canadian society where you have citizens pitted against other citizens and no state sort of refereeing it. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I will say, though, that there are remedies against this, right? Like with all of these issues, if you start to scratch the surface, there are ways to remedy or mitigate these risks. And with when it comes to um, social cohesion versus political unrest, I think it's clear that in Canada, we are becoming more and more divided and that we need to start thinking about um, governance mechanisms to bridge those divides in terms of how we can talk to each other and listen to each other better. Um, and also, you know, look at community leaders, look at church leaders, you know, have conversations with those in our communities who gather people under one roof um, and look at how we can strengthen our social cohesion. Because one thing is abundantly clear is that a more socially cohesive community on any scale, whether it's a neighborhood, a town, a city, a country, a province, um, it's that social fabric that is going to give all of us the strength and the resilience to better adapt and sort of roll with these impacts that are going to come out of left field. We're going to have to be adaptive and we have to be strong and we're going to be stronger together. So, um, yeah, so there are remedies, but I don't see yet in the mainstream any sort of efforts to actually sort of, I, I would say, not diffuse that political extremism, um, but maybe that is the word to sort of diffuse it or to defang it a little bit. Uh, back on a... Uh people can check this out. It was our April 21st episode of Real Talk, our Real Talk roundtable. Uh, it was the day ahead of Earth Day. And one of our panelists on the roundtable was an Athabasca University researcher that's been looking into the mental health impacts of climate change on young people. And it was mm. a fascinating conversation. What a fascinating, and, 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 and a, a gut-wrenching bit of subject matter as well right these are kids i mean you, th you think of that of that ancient uh, proverb about how we what, what is it that we we don't sort of uh, our, our our young people or the next generation doesn't inherit uh, the world from us you know we borrow it from them or we we don't inherit the world from our ancestors we borrow it from from our descendants i think that's it's just a principle that we really all need to consider um Essentially, as you point out in your piece, that by the time that 2060 hits, millennials are going to be in their 70s and 80s and their kids are going to be in their 40s. Um, you know, we always yeah. think think of the kids and oftentimes politicians when they're talking about the next generation, when politicians are talking about grandkids, they're mostly talking about debt load. Uh, they're not usually talking about climate. Uh, some do. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, it's it's uh, you know, it's it's sort of more conservative politicians talking about spending. Um, which is not to say that that's a point should be dismissed. Uh, but today we're talking about climate. So for those young people that might hear this, um, that might be experiencing climate anxiety, for people like Heidi uh, who are listening, and, and Heidi probably speaks to a certain degree for all of us or most of us, um, when you sent me an advanced copy of this piece, you sent me a personal note that said, just make sure you get to the end of the piece because it's not all bad, I promise. 
And uh, and so I wonder if maybe we wrap our conversation today because it's a tough it's tough. It's thinking about this. It's apocalyptic and is what it is. Um, as we wrap this up, is there is there something to focus on? You've talked about a collective effort. You've talked about a galvanizing impact. Uh, what would you leave real talkers with? Gosh. Well, first of all, I love the Real Talk audience. They're so supportive. And yeah, so, and thank you, Heidi. Hi, Heidi. Um, what would I leave people with? I mean, the the most, for me, I can just talk personally going through this journey of researching and reporting this. And, you know, we can't change the fact that the climate is now different. It is just a reality of our world now. And so we do need to catch up to that. Um, however, we are still at the point where it is still a choose your own adventure book. Like the choose your own adventure book is not over. There are still multiple options that we can pick. And those different options have very significant impacts for the better and for the worse. So if we continue as we are today with the climate policies that the world has in place today, we are on track for two and a 2.8 degrees Celsius warming by the end of the century. So this is sort of our current business as usual plan. However, I think we can all see, given what the world looks like at 1.2 degrees warming right now, that that is not a future that any of us want. Um, you, you talked about the next generation. I mean, there is a short-sightedness to, I think, Canadians. And I speak very, very generally, and maybe even just personally. Um, I think it's time that we start thinking about how to be better ancestors for the future generations. And so already, climate change is impacting our youngest citizens. You look at these smoke exposures, it is absolutely having a health impact on our youngest Canadians. There are even health impacts of climate change on fetuses who are in utero when their mothers experience climate disasters. Wow. And this is in Canada. So this isn't something that's going to only affect our children's future or the youngest Canadians future, it is already impacting their lives right now. And we simply need to get on the same page and start making the investments that are required to safeguard their future from these worst case scenarios. And we are starting to do that. I mean, for the first time ever, national emissions in Canada in, I believe it was 2021, started to show a small decline as a result of national climate policy. Up until now, the only times that our national emissions have gone down were because of economic downturns. And so our climate policies are starting to take a bite out of our greenhouse gas pollution, but that just needs to happen more. And we need to make it easier for Canadians to make those choices that lower their carbon footprint. I mean, everyone has this personal guilt and angst because Canadians are so compassionate and empathetic. But that guilt, I think, is unfairly directed. I think that we should be directing our anger even 
at some of our governments and at big oil, I will say, um, because it's sort of like there are a lot of parallels to big tobacco. We know that the smoking's bad for us. We know that having a better filter on the cigarette isn't going to necessarily protect our population the way it needs to be protected. Um, so we need to start having these conversations better and we just need to reduce our emissions. And if we can show the way and lead the way as one of the world's richest nations, all of us have some of the largest carbon footprints in the world here in Canada. So we just need to do better. We we cannot be part of the problem anymore. We have to be part of the solution. And I and you see glimmers of that happening and it's growing momentum, but we just need to double down. Yeah, it's it's not lost on me that the lion's share of our content, of our coverage um, over the past three weeks uh, has been Alberta's moratorium, like a seven month moratorium on new wind and solar projects. Um, and and some of the conversation that's been prompted by that across the country and around the world. And, uh, you know, you, we, we've hit it from a bunch of different angles, which I think a story like that needs to be covered. But but generally speaking, the message that it sends to the international community is a tough one. And, and that's been part of my commentary on it is that I worry about. And again, this doesn't even have anything to do with climate. The bigger picture, you could talk about climate change emissions. That's where the conversation should be. I just even worry about international investment and investor confidence and Alberta's reputation. And I think that it's a really tough look. Um, that said, you know, Alberta found itself. Uh, I don't know if you heard about this, but on the on the on the precipice teetering on the edge of a, of a blackout. Uh, just less than a week ago, um, where demand for electricity was so high that that uh, Alberta's grid could could barely keep up, could barely provide it, and we've had experts, uh, you know, telling us uh, both on the show and elsewhere that you know people should consider people that don't have generators or generator capacity should buy a generator. That this is part of the new reality as well. That demand for electricity is so high. And then, of course, it just depends on how you want to apply that scenario to your opinion on how a grid should be powered and what backup power needs to look like and the role that natural gas should play and yada, yada, yada. I mean, you and I could go on for five hours here on that. Uh, But the timing, uh, and that's the beauty of a show like this, I think, is that all of these stories and all of these conversations are running parallel and they're all relevant Mm -hmm. um, and they all demand our attention. Um, before we go, I don't want to just cut it off there. Did, did, do you have a take? Um, have, have you been watching from BC uh, on Alberta's decision? Are you in the mood to get political, even though we're just talking about your McLean's piece right now? How, how, <laughs> how, how has that story, what would I say? how has it been landing with you, if at all? I mean, I don't know if you've been paying, I suspect, oh, you, of course. I suspect of you've been course. paying attention to it. Of course I have, Ryan. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, there are different layers to it. An all-out moratorium, just with, like, no warning, virtually, seems very um, business-unfriendly. And it's ironic, because I remember, you know, in, like, around the 2010s, when Alberta was just trying to get all its oil product to, um, to water, and there was all this discussion of national pipelines... You could hear the oil the oil sector was saying, you know, we need certainty. We don't care what the rules are. We just need certainty because these infrastructure projects involve like 10, 20 year commitments and financing. And so you just need to give us we just need to know what the rules are and then we can play within the rules and plan within the rules. So, yes, I mean, I think 
Um, with that moratorium, I mean, yeah, that's like a, I, I mean, I'm not a business person, but it seems as a lay person looking at it, like a death knell for renewable industries who are the future, I will say, um, to turn away from Alberta or, yeah, it just makes it more risky, which is not what any investor wants. I understand that, you know, with any infrastructure project, you do need to have consultation with communities and you need to make sure that you have a plan for what's acceptable. And so um, I have no doubt that some of these areas that see solar farms going up so rapidly, maybe there's some people freaking out about that. Um, I imagine that there is a path that you could have whereby you didn't have to just kibosh and put on the back burner all the projects that were already underway. I mean, that seemed, to me, it seemed punitive. Um, yeah. Especially what because it's sort of proven, uh, you're being very diplomatic, um, it's, it's proven <laughs> uh, the justification behind it as, as evidenced and as broken on stories right here on Real Talk to be bullshit. Um, yes. where you know the Good work on that. By yeah, the way. thank you. Yeah. Uh, you know the premier telling Albertans that the rural municipalities of Alberta asked. Uh, now they are supportive of the moratorium, um, but yeah. the premier told Albertans they asked for it. Their president Paul McLaughlin told me no, they didn't. Um, and she also said that that two other agencies, two other organizations in Alberta, asked for it. They've both gone on the record said, no, we didn't. Um, and we've had those discussions on the show. So it stinks. Um, you know, we have the premier's senior advisor, the executive director of her office, former MLA, uh, Rob Anderson, on the record uh, before she was premier. He's on a Zoom call with her with Bruce McAllister, uh, a former news anchor, a former colleague of mine, in fact, uh, who's also a former MLA. He's hosting these like conservative party. You know, it's sort of like the Doug Ford school of they do their own shows and and their friendly talk shows. And there's nothing wrong with that. They can do whatever they want. Uh, but Rob Anderson's on there like two, three years ago saying solar farms are ugly and wind turbines are ugly and nobody wants them. And they're the blight and they're, they're taking away prime cropland. And it's like all the justification that the premier's office is using now for this moratorium, like, and literally word for word, the executive director wow. of, her, of her office is saying it on video. We've played it on past episodes. So we know where the source of this is. We know where the motivation is. It's not from the rural municipalities of Alberta. It's not from the Utilities Commission. It's not from anybody else. Um, and I think that that says something. It may not say it all. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't, to me, yeah. turn it into a non-issue. Uh, McLaughlin, President McLaughlin, joined us on the show and said, no, here are some of the issues that we hope are addressed during this moratorium. Um, and, and he came across as sounding, if I can say it, you know, in good spirit, sane. He sounded sane. He sounded practical. He sounded prudent. Like he didn't come across as, as, as irrational at all. Uh, but, mm. but you have to question the motivation of it. And, and I think that you invoking the word punitive uh, is an appropriate one in this sense. So it, it all brings us back down now to, to what do we feel as humans individually and collectively our role is in all of this. 
I'm so grateful yeah. that you took the time, not just like you said, six months, and, and no wonder it took you six months. I mean, the depth of your reporting on this is amazing. People can read it all at mcleans.ca. It's Canada in the year 2060 uh, by Anne Shabata Castleman, who's been our guest on this show today. Um, I wanted to find this one little bit of feedback here for you, but the live chat's going off. Uh, this was Scott who said, I love the deep thoughts of this guest. So there you go. You're landing well with Scott this morning, Anne. All I can think of is like, do you remember the SNL deep thought skit oh, from yeah, of course. the night? Jack Andy. <laughs> Scott, thank you. There you I, go. I, I, I'm taking that in my heart. Thank you. Yeah, there you are. Thanks, and, Ryan. And Anne, we took you way into overtime, but thanks for making time for us on this Tuesday morning. We appreciate it. this. The subject matter uh, deserves it, I would say. Definitely. Thank you. You got it. You can follow Anne on Twitter at Anne Castleman. Uh, And as mentioned, of course, we're grateful to to uh, have her included. Johnny with bringing up the the SNL Jack Handy slate right off the gates. Deep thoughts thoughts by Jack Handy (laughs) Uh, and a member of our editorial board here on on Real Talk and just an incredible uh, influence on this show and its direction and its content. in front of and behind the scenes, and we're grateful for that relationship. I saw a comment here from from an audience member who's tuning in. I appreciate every single one of you tuning in, and there's not like, you don't have like, this isn't one of those shows where you kind of have to subscribe to one way of thinking to feel like you belong in this community of audience members. We like uh, a diversity of thought. We like what different people bring to the table and, and when you bring your priorities to the table. But I saw a fellow by the name of Don in the live chat that said, you know, when I, when I asked Anne, if I said, you, you, are you in the mood to get political for a second to talk about this wind and solar moratorium? And Don said, well, this entire conversation has been political. Uh, I disagree. And I wanted to address that comment specifically and in particular because this we just had a 45-minute conversation with somebody um, and uh, 40 minutes of it was talking about science and not necessarily even just science looking forward, but scientific analysis of why, let's call it a postmortem, uh, let's call it a, an autopsy if you want, let's, take, let's, let's call it a, in retrospect, scientific analysis of things that did happen, of things that are happening, and that's not political. Like if 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 to you um, and, and we look at at all of the evidence that Anne presented and all of the current events and the, and the items in the news and these uh, these uh, horrific natural disasters um, and if and if we want to start evaluating and I say this to the liberals and the conservatives I say this to the NDP supporters and the UCP supporters I say this to the Democrats and the Republicans or whomever else uh, if we want to start looking at things like Lytton BC an entire town. Uh, setting heat records. I mean, almost 50 degrees, like 49 degrees Celsius and change, like a heat record, not in a good way. Uh, And then that town decimated, destroyed, like burned to the ground by wildfire. And we want to start turning that into like a partisan scenario. Uh, You know, the the political party, what what are we going to, you know, I mean, it feels silly to almost propose it, but there's going to be the one political party that thinks we should do something about it. And the one that doesn't like, really? I mean, if, 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 if I'm a liberal, I demand that the federal government uh, address this in meaningful fashion. And if I'm a conservative, I demand that the opposition present an alternative approach that equally reflects the impetus, the scenario, this emergency that, that humankind faces. I mean, I don't know how you argue that any other way. 
I recognize that some people get uncomfortable when, you know, if you work in, and Don, I don't know if this is fair to you or not, but I, I just Googled your name and, and, and here's who came up. I mean, Don Edgecombe naming himself live in the chat on LinkedIn. I find Don Edgecombe, who for, for 25 years was the manager of the Petroleum Tank Management Association. So I get it. And if that's not you, Don, I apologize. But if you worked for 25 years in petroleum tank management, I understand why you're bullish on the future of oil and gas. Because you made your fortune there. You made your living there. And because probably your friends do as well. I understand why people that are, you know, working on drilling rigs right now or, or welders that are working on pipelines recognize that, that there's a future global demand for oil and gas. We talked about this with Dr. Andrew Leach, the energy economist, just a couple of weeks ago. You can, he, he provided a very fair, informed analysis of the future of, of oil and gas, natural gas included, and the global market. Uh, I recognize that if you're if you're a bottom line type person that's paying attention to GDP and employment numbers, that you're concerned about talk of moving away from Alberta's number one industry over the past 70 years or so. Of course. Now, this show, we want this to be a, a place where you as an audience member can expect to have gutsy, meaningful, credible, informed conversations that may sometimes make you uncomfortable about what we need to do, about the right approach, the prudent approach, the sensible and empathetic approach, and yeah, the economically savvy approach to managing some of these challenges. Uh, if you feel like we've missed the mark on this conversation, on my comments, on the comments of guests that you hear here, uh, whether it was Anne or Charles before her, you can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Or, of course, Johnny, people can light us up on Twitter as well as they see fit. Mm-hmm. How did that land with you? I appreciated Heidi's comment about climate anxiety. That's And that's not a, a, something that we would take lightly. I think that, that most people, to a certain degree, feel that whether or not they would refer to it as climate anxiety or not how do you not feel anxious about some of the science that that we see in front of us yeah and i think Anne hit the nail on the head with that and i i didn't realize it either and i think you're exactly right if it's not right at your doorstep if it's not affecting your life financially emotionally physically you don't get it but i did two years ago in Kelowna when we could see a fire literally like a mile away and we could see people's houses in its wake it really started hitting home for me. And my partner, she has huge climate anxiety ever since then. The smoke these last few days, it just triggers her. And I know people out there, oh, well, suck it up. kind of. You know what I mean? They, oh, it's just smoke in the air. Yeah. But it, it does. It brings back memories. It's like PTSD of being close to stuff. And uh, it, it's a really scary time. And specifically when she was talking about kids, I think this is something like us who who kind of grew up you know, we had the whole Al Gore thing. Oh, everything's going to be underwater in yeah, five years. The inconvenient It truth. didn't really affect us because it didn't happen. But kids these days are really, they're dealing with these effects every day. And it's going to its gonna mess them up in the long run. Yeah, right? I feel like it's like every generation is born into anxiety about something. Yeah. You know, whether it was like nuclear war, mm-hmm. the Cold War, like whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, generations are born into anxiety on something. And the other thing is when we were growing up, we we had the onset of the Internet, but it wasn't so prevalent. Like kids get on social media every day and they see news stories. They see all this stuff happening. And I can't I, I can't knock them for looking at us and being like, what the fuck did you guys do? What were you what, guys doing? Like, what was your plan? And why haven't you been doing anything, yeah. you know, to help? 
to be fair to Don, he has responded to me on the live chat, so I want to put that out. But Don says, if you looked up my former profession, and I didn't, Don, I, but I, I take this as you confirming that that's you on YouTube, or on uh, LinkedIn, rather. He says, if you looked at my former profession, you'd know that our mandate was to protect the environment, which is great, Don. I'm sure it is. Except for five comments prior to that in the live chat, y- you call us political because we subscribe to climate change being man-made. So are you telling me that you were the manager of a program in Alberta designated to protect the environment, but you don't subscribe to the idea that humans have had some impact on climate change? The person in charge doesn't believe that there's a... like. I feel like I can't get started on that because I'm going to start being mean. And that's, mm. not my, that's not my MO is to pick fights with people in the live chat. But buddy... I mean, the science is staring you in the face. You know, I think it was Tony somewhere earlier. I noticed her comment in the live chat earlier that basically said it's, it's the, the spirit of her comment. Tony, I'm paraphrasing. I don't have it here. She basically said it's, it's, it's unbelievable that some people faced with evidence uh, still will take a, a contrarian position on it, maybe because they just can't handle the truth. And that may be it. Ooh. I get it. I get it that this is tough information to swallow. I get it. This is tough can't to take. handle the truth. I know a lot of people like drop their kids off at school today. They're in a great mood. And then the first episode back on Real Talk, we're talking about how Canada is going to hell in a handbasket. I understand that it can be tough to process sometimes, but that doesn't mean that we plunge our heads into the sand and pretend like it's not happening. It's never been our style and it never will be. These conversations happen because partners of ours believe in the value of Real Talk, and that includes the team at Eden Landscaping. They're bringing outdoor spaces to life, have been doing so for more than 20 years, including ours. As a matter of fact, this morning we had a family breakfast outside. Our project is nearly done. We're really, really looking forward to unveiling the finished product uh, to all of you. We've told you the story. We had a yard that was all torn up. Dogs, kids, poor drainage, shade, no sunlight. Does that sound familiar? So everything just looked brutal. So we had a plan in place. We had a budget set, and Eden Landscaping worked with us to make it all happen. We're thrilled with how it's turning out with this custom landscape builder. You can check out their portfolio, check out some of the work that they've done in Sherwood Park, Balmoral Heights. I mean, beautiful work on this trapezoid kind of ultra-modern house. It's all at landscapeedmonton.ca. Never too soon to start the conversation. Uh, so you can have shovels in the ground first thing next spring with Eden Landscaping. Hey, talking about the future of industry and, and where things are going, including with the energy economy and elsewhere, Apex Automation is at the leading edge. They're Canada's fastest growing automation firm, proudly based out of right here in Edmonton. Uh, but they're doing work across the country, down into the United States as well, including down in the Lone Star State. If you're intrigued by a career in automation, I mean, this could be in the energy industry, it could be in agriculture, could be in brewing. I mean, they do it all. Remote terminal units, alarm management, automated vehicles, including autonomous farm vehicles. Fascinating stuff. They're looking for professional engineers or those soon to graduate from engineering schools across the country. You can check out the careers link at apexautomation.ca. And if you're a decision maker for a municipality in Alberta or Saskatchewan, or if you're a business owner that, of course, is paying close attention, maybe closer than ever, to your bottom line, how much is going out and how much you're bringing in, if you're 
looking after the garbage and recycling contracts, you're going to want to take a second today to check in with local environmental services. We can virtually guarantee you're going to pay less for services, not just garbage and recycling, but water hauling, landfill services, vacuum trucks, fencing, portable toilets. You're going to pay less with local environmental than you will with anybody else. And there are a full service environmental solutions partner, which means when it comes to waste collection, you can't afford not to partner with local environmental services. Our first episode of every week, our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy. You can get a free solar quote today at kubienergy.ca. They, they give us a second, an opportunity to focus on the positives, to celebrate something that's restoring our faith in humanity or that's blasting sunlight into an otherwise cloudy day. It's a tradition that we call positive reflections. Now, typically we would take a look at a story oftentimes submitted by you real talkers and we would take a look at somebody that's you know paid forward uh an act of kindness or or somebody that's looked to a, a human being or an animal around them in need and has done something about it but well today's is personal i want to take a second to celebrate what went down at the fairmont jasper park lodge this last weekend it was the annual tee up for tots golf tournament in support of the Stollery Children's Hospital Foundation. Johnny, I was drafted to play with Team Brennan, and uh, these guys have been golfing. They haven't missed a tournament. They've been playing in this for more than 20 years in honor of Brennan, one of their beloved family members. Uh, It was such a pleasure to be out there with them to enjoy Canada's number one resort golf course, but also to celebrate the cause, to recognize the amazing work that the Stollery Children's Hospital is doing for young patients, uh, those uh, infants, the brand newborns, all the way up to the 17 and 18-year-olds that require, in many circumstances, life-saving care. In B.C., Northwest Territories, Yukon, Alberta, Saskatchewan, you name it, the Stollery is serving thousands and thousands of Canadians every single year, but they can't do it without fundraising events like this one. And I was so proud to be able to host the event and to be able to see so many familiar faces, people that return year after year with one mission. And that is to make sure that the pediatric oncologists, the neurologists, the nurses, the doctors, and everybody else at the Stollery doesn't have to worry about where the money's gonna come from. I am thrilled to announce that this year, a record-setting $1.123 million was raised at Tee Up for Tots, thanks to everybody in attendance at the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge. We're gonna be back at it again next year, and there's always room for more supporters. It's Tee Up for Tots, presented by the Thompson Family Foundation. You can learn more by Googling it or shoot us a note, and I'd be happy to put you in touch with their committee. Thanks to everybody who made it such a record-setting success. I figured that deserved a positive reflection today, presented by our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy. Coming up on Wednesday's episode, Alberta's classrooms are overcrowded. Why does it matter? What does it mean? And how do you solve the problem? We're going to talk to an Alberta Views journalist and a teacher live in studio where they'll bring some solutions. We'll see you then. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, executive producer Josh Dunford. 
Technical Producer, John Hicks. General Manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Account Coordinator, Lawrence Derlego. Human Resources, Lena Shepard. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.